Once again, boys and girls, it's time to take a walk beyond the grassy knoll, to draw back the curtain to take a peek at the wizard. Visigoths Beyond the Grassy Knoll continues. Uh, welcome to another segment of Beyond the Gra Grassy Knoll. We have with us today author Joan Mellon. Among the 17 titles presently out there, and I think she's going to tell us later there's an 18th coming. And uh, the books that cover a variety of topics and personages, the one book we'll discuss during this interview is Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination, and the case that should have changed history. Uh, Joan, before we get into the, the meat of this, first of all, thanks a lot for taking some time out to be with us. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate it. And on probably the only light moment we'll have in this interview, I just had to say one of the books that caught my eye was Bob Knight, His Own Man. And I'm thinking to myself, Bob Knight, Jim Garrison, both six foot five or over. I'm saying, is there anything about these individuals of stature in more ways than one that you find compelling subjects? Well, both of them took a real drubbing in the press. Both of them uh, were presented as demons, and then when you get to know them, they had in common that they were really very different from the person that the mainstream press has represented them to be. So they have that in common. Both were mavericks. Both went, uh, saw things as they saw them and didn't care what anyone thought, went ahead with what they thought was right. They have a lot in common, actually, yeah. aside from being tall. <laughs> but they, they were lightning rods, without a doubt, and, uh, and not timid men whatsoever. And I hope, obviously, they both had the courage of their convictions, which I think you're telling me they did. That's right. All right. Uh, now, not, not all authors have the ability to have some kind of proximity to their subject. Sometimes people write biographies or biographical material, you know, centuries after a, a, a person has been alive. But you did have some proximity to Garrison, did you not? That's right. And I have to say, I also knew Kay Boyle, about whom I wrote a biography, and I okay. had met late in her life Lillian Hellman, about whom I've also written. And I, and I think that if it's at all possible, it's very good to have had a feel for the presence, for what the person was like, even if you don't know them very well, somewhat well. And so, yes, I did know Jim Garrison. I met Jim Garrison in 1969, which was a few months after Clayshaw had been acquitted. And I said this often, when, you meet, when, I, when I met Garrison, you would never have known that Garrison uh, had lost the case because he went on talking about the assassination, about his investigation, just as if it were ongoing and as if it would continue. And uh, I, uh, it, was, it was extremely striking. He just never, he also never mentioned that he was running for re-election for district attorney. This was 1969, and you'd think that having lost the Shaw case, and of course the press in New Orleans really uh, called for his being uh, removed from office for not being re-elected, he got elected by a huge majority. That October, the coming October, this was right. in May. Mm -hmm. But how, did, but how did you come upon Garrison? Were, uh, were you down there? Uh, did you live there? Were you going to school down there? Or? I met Garrison because my husband at the time had been the person from who had been in London, and he found a series of articles in Paese Sera, an Italian newspaper, right. which exposed an organization called Permindex, a CIA front, and on its board of directors was Clay Shaw. And this, his name was Ralph Schoenman, and he discovered these articles at a time when they might have been of use to Garrison before the Clayshaw trial because he knew the 
My husband knew the uh, correspondent in London for Paese Serena. He was stationed in London, and he mailed the articles to Garrison in New Orleans. And Garrison, being grateful, although he didn't use the articles in the Shaw trial, and I think you can't really use newspaper articles as evidence in a trial, it's hearsay, but nonetheless, uh, Garrison was grateful to have had the articles because one of the problems that Garrison had, he, he believed that the CIA was behind the assassination, he believed that Clay Shaw was a CIA operative, as indeed he was, but at that time, remember that the JFK Act uh, was, was not even a gleam in anybody's eye in 1969. We didn't have these documents in Clay Shaw's uh, operational files until uh, after the JFK Act was passed in 1992. This was just at, almost at the moment that Garrison died. But he had the, a feeling that this was the case. He had the intuition that it was the case. He had evidence about Oswald's intelligence connections and Oswald's connections to Shaw. And these articles were helpful, although, as I say, he couldn't really use them in court. So after the, the, the Shaw trial had ended, and he invited us to come to meet him in New Orleans. My husband had never met him, and so he invited us to visit him and talk, and that was how we came to New Orleans. I believe it was May 1969. right. Okay, so that, that account that you have in your preface is the first time you all met uh, in person. That's right, and I've met Garrison on other occasions after that, but that was the most vivid time, uh, the first time. And I met Garrison, in fact, in 1989, the last time. And that was, I was doing research on another book, about the one about Cave Oil, and I wanted to meet with Garrison, and he just kept talking as if, again, this was in 1989, uh, Oliver Stone was working on JFK, and again, it was as if it were an open case, as if he was still investigating, as if, uh, and he was just as passionate about the investigation into the murder of President Kennedy in 1989 as he was in 1969. It was amazing and uh, kept talking. He kept talking. Just as he said, it's interesting, when uh, he was talking about uh, somewhere, he was talking about Oswald being murdered uh, a couple of days after he was arrested in the end, Garrison would say, well, they had to kill him because if they didn't kill him, he'd still be talking. Uh And here's Garrison still talking. If he were alive today, he'd still be talking. I I just wanted to say... uh when uh, I learned about Garrison, I believe it was around 1967, I hadn't quite turned 16. And of course, he was demonized, and at that time I was swallowing mainstream news like most people still do to today. And, uh, and I didn't really want to pay attention. At that time, I, you know, I wasn't political. Uh, but as the years went by, it started to dawn on me, and of course, as you realize that uh, Oswald was not alone in this, that why would you go to, to the extent that they demonized him and for and almost like in perpet, uh, in per, perpetually let me just say that unless he was right over the target that's right and i i don't see how one could draw any other conclusion here's garrison pointing to the cia as being responsible for the planning of the assassination here's the cia from the time of garrison's investigation until today uh, attacking Garrison. Garrison's name is persona non grata, and uh, books are being published at a regular basis now on the JFK assassination, uh, presenting the view, which was the mafia, uh, which sorry, which was the CIA's second line of defense, which was that the mafia did it. When I, when, my, when a farewell to justice came out in ni- late 19, uh, sorry, late 2005, out comes a book called Ultimate Sacrifice, which ignores the Louisiana evidence almost completely, ignores Shaw and all of that, ignores that Oswald was in Louisiana that summer, and insists that the mafia really did it. 
Now we have another book like that, almost as if they had to keep publishing these books. It's by David Kaiser, and it's another, The Mafia Did It. It's as if the CIA sponsors, endorses, helps these books, and of course these books are reviewed in places that I could never be reviewed. So I'm aware of that. And as far as the demonization of Garrison is concerned, I want to add that I had I published very recently, just in the last few months, a prequel to A Farewell to Justice called Jim Garrison, His Life and Times, The Early Years, uh -huh. which you can get on Amazon and which describes the man, lest anyone still believe and swallow the view that it was Garrison was crazy, as the FBI said, that he was a demon, that he was wrong, that he was sloppy, that he was uh, unkind to witnesses and didn't give them their rights. I wanted to write the story of Garrison's his, his childhood, his law school, his World War II record, and his having been part of the liberation of the Dachau concentration camp, and his political career in New Orleans. Uh, and I end that book in 1966 when he immerses himself in the Kennedy in the investigation. Who is this person? Because if I, and I, this actually was originally be part of a, for, a farewell to justice, but the publisher didn't want to publish so long a book. Right. Again, because it was Garrison. If it were some other subject, you can publish a thousand-page book, but not on Garrison. So I was very grateful to a small group, JFK Lancer, which published Jim Garrison, His Life and Times, which, you can, as I say, you can get it on Amazon, take a look, and see who Garrison really was. And let, so we can do away with the notion that there was something wrong with Garrison, that he did things that were illegal, that his motives for investigating the Kennedy assassination had to do with his protecting Carlos Marcello and the mafia, which you can see in the story of his life, that he was always opposed to the mafia and that Carlos Marcello wanted nothing more than for Jim Garrison to lose the office of district attorney. Garrison is, quote-unquote, was not reliable for the mafia and so forth. Now, I know I got a little off the question there. But no, that's okay, and then that's fine, and I got some notes, and I want to revisit, and I, I might alter that order because of what you just said, but let me get that straight, at least when I refer to an 18th title coming out, Jim Garrison, Life and Times is now available as well, is that correct? That's right, it's available on Amazon, it was a small publisher, so you're not going to find it necessarily in Barnes and Noble, right. but at least we have Amazon, I'm grateful to them. Is there a chance there's going to be a trilogy as well? Yes, there is, okay. but that's not about Garrison. That's going to take us a little further, shall we say, west. <laughs> All right. A little further west. Now, I'm, in the, I'm in the middle of that right now. Okay. Now, referring to changing the order of, of some of the questions I wanted to ask you, because of what you said about the uh, very interesting coincidental contemporaneous appearances of other books that would uh, continue to, to whack uh, Garrison, uh, I'd like to bring into this now, because there will be some people who I uh, want to have here this interview, in particular who I have been colleagues with, who just cleave to Gerald Posner's book. And you have a very interesting footnote in there about Posner. Can you relate that to us? Remind me again of that of that particular footnote, because I'm sorry, I, I, I don't recall which one it was. All right, it was just that uh, he had been hand-chosen. Oh, yes. Oh, I know what footnote that was. And that was Posner himself meeting with Bill Turner, who had been writing about the Garrison investigation in the past. And uh, t uh, they were in the green room, I suppose, at some television or radio show, I can't recall which. And Posner confided to Bill Turner that he had no intention of writing a book on the Kennedy assassination, but that Random House called him. And Robert Loomis, who's really well known as the agency's person at Random House, Loomis called him and said, listen, if you write a book on on the Kennedy assassination, you'll have full cooperation of the CIA. That's extraordinary. 
And Posner said it himself. We didn't have to accuse him of it. We didn't have to guess about it. He, he saw nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But there it is. So we know who sponsored that analysis. And, you know, and of course, we can assume immediately then that Garrison would come in for a heavy attack in a book like that. Uh, also was mentioned that, shall we say, Posner played it a bit fast and loose with some of the facts. That's true, and I think that one of the things that writers like Posner, like Gus Russo, and others who have written, is that when they don't distort the Louisiana evidence, they simply leave out what's inconvenient. That's one of the uh, tactics, and I think that's true, for example, in Ultimate Sacrifice, that mafia book, where you never even know that Oswald traveled north of Baton Rouge with Clay Shaw and David Ferry, and what the implications of that trip were, which I think is this evidence that Oswald actually took a trip with two CIA operatives, Shaw and Ferry, up there north of Baton Rouge, it seems to me it breaks the case. What is he doing up there? It's clearly that there's an assignment because Oswald is asked to go to get a job at the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson, which is an insane asylum. And uh, and uh, he doesn't even know that. He thinks it's just a hospital. When he goes to the barber shop and he asks right. directions, they, the barber said, uh, Leah McGee, do you know that this is a mental hospital? And Oswald said he didn't. So he's clearly on assignment, and then I was very fortunate to have met Dr. Frank Silva, mm -hmm. who was the medical director of the hospital at that time, and who ran into Oswald in the hospital, and here's Oswald in a t-shirt, sloppy, yelling, uh, mouthing off about how he's going to go to Cuba and kill Fidel Castro, and he has his Marine Corps training, and he has his manual, the very same thing that he said when he visited Carlos Bringier's store in New Orleans. Bringier was the person that he got that, into that so-called scuffle with on Canal Street, that led to Oswald's arrest in New Orleans. So, what about all that? You can't just ignore it because there were so many witnesses, black, white. One of the witnesses was, who actually became a friend of mine, a form, now a former judge and a former U.S. congressman, John Rarick. And at that time, Rarick was the judge for East Feliciana Parish and West Feliciana. And he was standing there in the square when Oswald and Shaw and Ferry drive up in the black limousine that they drove up to because Oswald was trying to register to vote in Clinton, and the reason is that when he went to the hospital to apply for his job on the application, and I got some of those old applications, it asks, are you a registered voter of East Feliciana Parish? And Oswald, of course, wasn't. He was living in New Orleans, and so he went over to Clinton to be a registered voter. And the, the registrar of voters, his name was Henry Earl Palmer, why should he, he can't register, he's not a resident. And so he said, well, do you, who do you, need? do you have two people who are citizens of East Feliciana Parish? Um, who would vouch for you. And Oswald mentions Dr. Silver, whom he didn't even know, but who was just the hospital uh, director, and he got his name, and he mentions that one of the other one is one of the doctors at the hospital. The whole thing is a setup of some kind. And for people who write books and don't mention this, well, they just, uh, they're just, just it's just a sham, really, and it, it really does great disservice to the whole field of historical research when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, that we have like people like this out on the loose writing these books, publishers publishing them, and so forth. And, and of course, what they do is they, they put up a lot of smoke, and they, put, and they insist that they're right, and so people just throw up their hands, and they say, well, this says this, this book says that, how do we know which is right? Well, never know end of discussion well what's very interesting and again it's what i thought back in the old days and really most people probably still are thinking with regard to the mainstream story about this and i was thinking why is why is a da uh in orleans parish getting involved with this thing that happened in texas well now of course just what you've said 
what probably the greatest key to what was going on is held in the state of Louisiana. Um, with all that was going on, I mean, it almost was comical what was taking place there, if you know what I mean, and, and I'll go into some of the other things. But now here, one of the questions I do have, what ultimately do you believe Oswald was gaining by going to the hospital and then, then making himself rather conspicuous with his, you know, bellicose uh, uh, presentation? Well, that's a very interesting question, and we don't really have a definitive answer to what, why Oswald was sent up there to get a job, because he's following orders. Well, what is that all about? One thing is I think Oswald had no idea himself of why he was there. But why was he there? And Garrison had to sit down and spec. He didn't have the answer either, and he had to speculate. Well, if you, the way that I approached the answer to that question was to look at the Warren report and to see the description of Oswald. And we see that he, Oswald is described as an unstable individual, almost as a sociopath, a person who doesn't get along well with others as a sociopath, and so forth. And here we have him being asked to get a job in a mental hospital. And Garrison speculated that be, having been in a mental hospital, maybe at some point he'd be turned from an employee into a patient. He would escape. And then who would we find at Daly Plaza? Who would we find in Dallas but a person escaped from an insane asylum? And therefore, we, how well it would fit the scenario that a one single person, an individual, an insane person out of the insane asylum shot President Kennedy. So the lone assassin theory of a, an unstable lunatic that did it would work perfectly with Oswald having some association with that hospital. All right, two things. One, yes. Now that's speculation because, right. after all, we don't have we don't have the blueprint of that. Well, two things. One, this unstable uh, characterization of Oswald builds the perfect lone gunman profile. Two. That's right. He, he may have been building it, not knowing that if in fact was going to be he, that was going to be the patsy. Is that, is that possible? That's right, Keith. And I think when you look at Oswald's activities in New Orleans, what you see, and I, I think, is that Oswald thought he was in the anti-Castro effort. That when he was training at some of those training camps north of Lake Pontchartrain with David Ferry, I gather that David Atlee Phillips made an appearance, you know, who he was the CIA chief, I think, of Western Hemisphere. What is all that about? Oswald thinks he has somehow connected with the CIA's uh, uh, effort to un uh, unseat Castro. And that's why he's up there. That's what Ferry was involved in and uh, Shaw was involved in. Shaw was working for Freeport Sulphur. Well, Freeport Sulphur was one of the companies whose property and uh, work, you know, were, were confiscated by Castro in the agrarian reform movement that Castro created. So what is all this? So uh, I think, and when we see Oswald approaching Carlos Bringier, when we see Oswald approaching Ernesto Rodriguez and saying, I want to be involved in the anti-Castro movement, he says it at the hospital. He says it four or five times. I don't know why. And, and, I, and I also discovered, through another angle, talking to a Cuban who was working closely with Robert Kennedy, and it's at the end of A Farewell to Justice, named Angelo Mercado, who said that they, they knew that Oswald was in the anti-Castro movement, so that when they went up to New Orleans that summer of 1963 to see what was going on, they found Oswald. Uh, because, you know, CIA's efforts to uh, get rid of Castro and Robert Kennedy sometimes coincided and sometimes didn't. So they were looking to see what Oswald was up to, and I think I quote this in A Farewell to Justice, Angelo Mercado, and I, I interviewed him in Miami, told me, well, we found out that Oswald was uh, working with the FBI, and since the FBI had him under control, we didn't have to worry about him. Because I suppose Mercado thought he looked like a loose cannon. 
But if the FBI had him under control, they could rest easy. He's under control. He wasn't going to, and I think by that he meant he wasn't going to act unilaterally. I don't think it meant that, they, that Robert Kennedy or his people thought that Oswald would be connected with the murder of his brother. I don't think that at all. Well, and now here's the other thing about uh, this bit about, uh, and, it, and it seems that Patsies usually are uh, folks who uh, go out and get remembered whether they know what, what's going to happen to him or not. And, and I'm talking about other assassins and perhaps what even happened with 9-11, but that's another whole deal. But on the other hand, were there other supposed Oswalds going around and acting up and being remembered as well? Well, I, I was, I, was uh, I interviewed a man named Thomas Edward Beckham, and he told me that he was trained at Langley or the farm or wherever around to be, a, he felt that that was really, he didn't understand what his training was, but he was sent by his handler, his name was Jack Martin, worked out of the office of Guy Bannister, whom all people who have studied the Kennedy assassination in New Orleans know about Guy Bannister, that he was sent there to be trained, and it was pretty clear to him that he was being trained to be a patsy, that should Oswald not work out, should Oswald not cooperate, well, he'd be another young man whom nobody would miss and who was intelligent and who, you know, would be someone who, you know, could, could be given the blame. And uh, Beckham told me how he had previously been get, sent on a mission to Dallas to deliver maps and di diagrams to someone who was working with the CIA, whose name was Lawrence Howard. And uh, uh, this was just sort of very shortly before the assassination. So he had been utilized. So there were other people like Oswald, and I'm sure maybe there were even others. I mean, we, uh, and if you recall, th this whole atmosphere of people being used is reflected in the story of Richard K. Snake Out, which is written about, who was written about in, uh, by, by Dick Russell in his book, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And remember what Nate Gell did? He fired a shot in the street, I think, outside a bank, I get inside a bank. He wanted to be arrested by federal authorities. That's why he chose a bank, so that he'd be in jail in November of 1963, and nobody could say that he had anything to do with the Kennedy assassination. Well, there, here, here we go. There were probably other assets that were available should Oswald not have worked out, or even Beckham not worked out. Can we assume that there were true. A, a pool from sure. which they could choose? I think so, but I, you know, I was very fortunate to that, that Mr. Beckham told me his story, and so at least we had that. That's clear. There was one, and no doubt there were others. And apparently, uh, Beckham's credibility, which I guess through years before or, uh, was somewhat questionable, but it seems that when he took the lie detector test, uh, he came out as being truthful. He was telling the truth, and I thought that was very important because Richard Hunter of the New Orleans Police Department, who gave him that lie detector test, was a master. And I, and so that the two New Orleans police officers, Robert Burris and uh, and L.J. Delsa. Uh, they, uh, they, they they took that very seriously. And when they went to Washington, this is for the House Select Committee now, the investigation in the 1970s, and they came there with that, with that information, nobody wanted to hear it, which indicated, of course, that the House Select Committee so-called investigation was controlled by the CIA. And you can see that as well. There's more other evidence, which was provided by Eddie Lopez, who worked for the House Select Committee, was maybe one of the few honest people involved there, who, so who reported to Gaten Fonzie, who was the investigator for the Miami investigator for the House Select Committee, reported that when a, a Cuban individual named Bernardo de Torres came to be deposed by the House Select Committee, both the CIA and the FBI came in there first to indicate what he could be asked and what he couldn't be asked. You know, I got and Lopez, nobody would believe that Lopez would reveal that information, but there it was. It was true. 
And I, I just got a feeling with, with, with the Beckham episode that when they were going to give him the polygraph, they were they pretty much felt he was a pathological liar. And I guess he must have turned them around as he went through the uh, the uh, interrogatory. He's a very intelligent young man without a lot of formal education, and uh, and he's impressed other people too. There was a judge in Alabama called Charles McKnight who called me, who had represented Beckham in a, in a manner, and he was also very impressed with this person. He was, you know, it wasn't, uh, and I think you could transfer that to Oswald as well. You know, the media have presented him as sort of dim, dyslexic, mm -hmm. not very intelligent, and that wasn't the case at all. Now, one just. To clarify, because I might be a little confused on this, uh, yes, I do understand that there were other, quote, Oswalds ready to go if uh, the, the principle didn't work out. But were there also other people posing as Oswald to get this being remembered kind of thing? Well, you have to get John Armstrong in on this. I don't know if you know about his book, because he insists that there, there were two distinct Oswalds that run right through. I don't know anything about this. Okay. I'm not going there. Okay. But, uh, but you know, that, that, you know, that we're just going along, really, from the very early 1950s. And I can't recall the title of his book right now, but uh, I, I, I'm only telling you what I know, what I investigated myself, what I know for sure. And there's speculation. It's such a, a strange story. And, uh, one, one wonders how this all came about. There's so much lying. David Ferry had visited Dallas the week of the assassination. And uh, presumably, maybe he spoke to Oswald. That's what Don DeLillo shows in his novel, Libra. That's a novel. But I, 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 I was able to prove, I think for the first time, maybe, that Ferry did rent an airplane and fly to Dallas that week. And I found a, a friend of Ferry's, whose name was John Wilson, and uh, he's still alive. And John Wilson and his brother uh, used to see D David Ferry quite often. And one day, David Ferry, you know, told him he was going to Dallas. He was wearing camouflage clothes, I think, that time, or maybe. And, uh, and, and then when the assassination occurred, they woke up that morning and they heard, they woke up late, you can imagine. <laughs> and they heard uh, what happened and they thought that Ferry did it. Because they knew he had been in Dallas, he talked about going hunting and various metaphors, and it seemed to them that Perry was involved. And just to, to set the record straight, uh, I, I would take it that Oswald was any was not uh, of low IQ. Uh, you, you'll clear us up on this, but on the, because on the other hand, I don't know if he was necessarily a genius if he was being used all this time. But but where did where does it come down with him and, and how much? Uh, the faculties he had as far as um, the way he's been painted. Well, I don't know what his exact IQ, and I'm not sure we would really even have to credit that much. Mm -hmm. I think IQ is ridiculous in a way, the whole idea. But we have to look at Oswald's personality and his uh, the configuration. We see this kid with a very, um, you know, kind of dysfunctional childhood watching I Led Three Lives. And that was Herbert Philbrick's story about how he pretended to be a communist and was really an, an FBI agent in, uh, uh, infiltrating communist uh, party. And that also became a, a TV series, too, I remember, with Richard the Carlson. The TV series was one that, that's right, the TV series was Oswald's favorite show. Mm -hmm. And I found a wonderful incident that was in the Garrison Files, and that had to do with a, the head of the astronomy club, William Wolfe, in New Orleans, who reported after the assassination that Oswald, as a teenager, came and wanted to join the astronomy club. And, and Wolfe said, you know, hey, uh, you know, it was clear that Oswald knew nothing about astronomy, had no great interest in astronomy. And Wolfe said to Oswald one day, well, why are you here? And Oswald said, I like to infiltrate. Well, yeah.
we're teenagers. <laughs> well, and, and you said it correctly, though. He had to have some some obviously uh, strong points and perhaps personality or knowing how to get things done. Uh, you know, he had to have something going for himself to be at least this valuable, apparently, to a number of uh, intelligence agencies. Well, you know, there are some people that uh, like to be alone, and he wasn't one of them, although presented as a lone assassin. Uh, he liked to join things. He liked. He wanted to be part of something. Many people are like that. I mean, look, you don't have to look very far to find joiners, people who want to be in groups. You can see him by uh, choosing military service. Look that he was chosen as one of the false defectors into the Soviet Union. I mean, that was a small group of people. There's maybe a dozen people that were picked uh, by the, by the uh, U.S. counterintelligence to go into the Soviet Union and pretend that they were defectors but we're really working for the Central Intelligence Agency. And in my new book, uh, Jim Garrison, His Life and Times, I have an interview at the beginning, even though the book is about Garrison's life, I couldn't resist including this, with, by, by a former CIA translator who described to me, and this is extremely important, he described it also to Senator Schweiker, he described it to Frontline, the television show. Nobody really registered or, or took seriously what he was saying. And what Don, Deniselia, his name was Donald Deniselia, what he said was that in his capacity working for the uh, Soviet uh, division there of, of the CIA, he found a document that passed his desk, which showed that Oswald was debriefed by the CIA after he returned from the Soviet Union. Now, CIA, all the years, I think up until the present moment, have always denied that Oswald was debriefed. And here it is, and he saw the document. Unfortunately, we do not have the document, but we have this witness who saw the document. It was, you know, four or five pages long, describing an American who was defected, who had worked in a radio factory in Minsk. Now, when, when Dennis Elia commented about that at the time, somebody said, oh, it's Robert Webster. That's another one of the false defectors whose files we have. But the Webster debriefing document does give Webster's name. This was not it. And he was working in a plant in Leningrad, not in Minsk. The only American defector was working in a radio plant in Minsk. How many were there? That was Oswald. There's no question about that. We're coming up to the bottom of the hour, and our guest today is Joan Mellon. We're talking about primarily uh, the book, uh, Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination, and the case that should have changed history. We've also heard a little bit about the... Uh, the, the latest book that's out, Jim Garrison, Life and Times, um, The Early Years. Uh, Joan, uh, do you want to speak at all about the website? Because, I mean, you do have one, and I don't know if, you're, if you take emails, but if, if this interview might bring questions to certain people's uh, attention, how are you about fielding uh, questions with regard to the book and, uh, and, and what we're talking about today? Well, I'm happy to, um, if people want to email me, but just make sure that in the subject line you say what it is so that I, uh, I know. And uh, you could, it's Joan Mellon at AOL.com. My two websites, the one that has most of the materials for Farewell to Justice is JoanMellon.net. Okay. But the other website for Jim Garrison is Life and Times, which is in process, is uh, JoanMellon.com. All right, and those two uh, sites will be uh, attached to the audio file that you'll find on our homepage, folks. And again, uh, you're, you're going to be spelling Mellon, M-E-L-L-E-N. Joan Correct. Mellon, one word, right? Jo yeah, the, the Joan Mellon, one word. J-O-A-N-M-E-L-L-E-N. All right, uh, if we could, I, I, I'd like to go back to Jim Garrison. And, all right, let me ask you this. 
if, if he didn't have, and I, this, I know this is a stretch, but if he didn't have his experience during his military service in World War II at Dachau, do you think he would have tackled the, the Kennedy mystery? That's an interesting question because he did, Garrison did say in the famous Playboy interview that they did uh, regarding the, when he visited Dachau that it has haunted him ever since. And I have to say that in both, in, no, in, in the new book, Jim Garrison, His Life and Times, I published some of the photographs that Garrison himself took at Dachau. And I did that to show him because he kept these photographs in a small album with him for the whole, for the whole of his life, like a little homemade album. It meant a lot to him that he saw that so I don't know if I could I could prove that but certainly it indicates what kind of person Garrison was he studied law but he was a person who was interested as his friends have told me more in justice than in the law he had to make a living in New Orleans and so he became a lawyer and then he ran for district attorney but as soon as the uh, as the well, as soon as he found out that Oswald really didn't do it, and I have to tell you how he did, and I think I was the first to know, know this, and that is that he got he got totally, it was Hale Boggs. Hale Boggs was a Louisiana congressman and a friend, you know, everybody in New Orleans, in New Orleans Louisiana knew each other, and Hale, Dick Garrison was in, I don't know where, maybe where he visited, he met Boggs, and Boggs was on the Warren Commission, and Boggs told him, wait a minute, this guy didn't do it alone, and furthermore, he was working for the FBI. Well, well, when Garrison heard that, this was in 1965, he returned. Now, he had interviewed David Ferry in 1963, right after the assassination, and uh, he had gotten a hint from that same Jack Martin about whose CIA credentials and intelligence connections. I actually have the, pre the appendix to Jim Garrison, His Life and Times, is about Jack Martin. Jack Martin was the first witness in New Orleans who told the Garrison office about Oswald and Ferry knowing each other. And uh, so that after the assess, that very weekend of the assassination, Garrison interviewed David Ferry on the Monday. Kennedy was killed on a Friday. And uh, then uh, Garrison turned Ferry over to the FBI and the Secret Service for further investigation, which, as we know, didn't happen. Now, two years later, when Garrison learns from Hale Boggs that Oswald was, couldn't have done it alone, and furthermore, that he was working for the FBI. And then he read, Garrison read an article about the Warren Report by Dwight McDonald in Esquire magazine. It's then that he decides to involve himself in the Kennedy assassination. And we can see that he turned over the business of the district attorney's office to his assistants and to the chief assistant at the time, I think, Charlie Ward. And Garrison devoted himself almost exclusively from that moment on, and I would say even to the end of his life, to investigating the Kennedy assassination. He knew, and what he said was, it happened in my jurisdiction, yeah. which it did, because what happened in the between April and September, up until the point, say, that Oswald visits Sylvia Odio in Dallas, that really you can discover what went on in the Kennedy assassination from the New Orleans summer. So Garrison had so many of the people that were involved right there, from Ferry and Oswald and uh, Shaw, uh, and as people, he found people who were part of the conspiracy. That doesn't mean, as Gore Vidal told my ex-husband Ralph Schoenman, uh, oh, uh, Clay couldn't have shot Jack. Well, no, nobody said that uh, Clay Shaw shot President Kennedy, but rather that he knew about the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy and when was a part of the framing of Oswald. You know, it seemed to me that that Garrison might have been an individual shaped by his experiences that either was uh, an advocate for the little guy or a, 
and or um, somebody who was a giant killer. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Garrison was a, for the little guy. And in my new book, I have to keep mentioning my new book, mm -hmm. Jim Garrison, His Life and Times, you see Garrison in the civil rights issue. That was the big issue. Garrison was elected in 1962. There were Klan bombings. There was censorship. There was all kinds of, uh, of uh, things that were happening regarding uh, the civil rights in, in, in the South at that time. And Garrison stood firm. He was alone in all of that. He demanded that those people be prosecuted. And uh, he also demanded that priests who, uh, you know, molested boys were prosecuted at a time when, up until that time, the two Catholic judges on the criminal court in Orleans Parish would give those priests a little discussion, a slap on the wrist, and send them on their way. And Garrison insisted that they be prosecuted. And William Alford, who was the assistant district attorney who did those, those cases, uh, told me about it. Uh, there it is. You can see uh, Garrison said nobody is above the law and, uh, well, you know, was always trying really to, uh, he was trying for justice. And that's, uh, if you look at his life, I think you can see that that passion for justice finally manifests itself in the in, in his interest in finding out who killed President Kennedy. It turns out it's not an idle matter. It's not one murder. When we look at the Kennedy assassination in the light of history, what we see is that some of the events and crises and miseries that we see today in this country, the Iraq war, the collapse of the economy, everything that has followed, can be dated from the moment that an intra-government conflict erupted and a government agency killed the President of the United States in the streets. After that, there's just anarchy. Anything goes, no one has any no. recourse and so forth. All right, now, you just raised another question. I'm going to hit that one because the other one, I was, other ones I at least have written down. I don't want this one to escape. Uh, but one of the things I was thinking about, and I have for some time, that, yeah, and you remember that period well. I mean, we looked at three assassinations in a, uh, two in a very brief period of time. Three altogether, of, of course, that I was cognizant of. And it, it seemed to me to be that if, if some nefarious uh, agencies, uh, secret or quasi-secret, could do this, then actually, and with success with three out of three, and not getting caught, so to speak, that, act, like you said, you called an anarchy. My feeling was, hey, anything goes. And that left me with a kind, a kind of frightened feeling, because obviously this isn't Kansas anymore. Kansas? Well, what I mean is, it, I, I was brought up, you know, like leave it to Beaverland. Uh, yes, well, that's right. And I think that the faith in the government eroded with the uh, cover-up of the Kennedy assassination. And we, of course, had other reasons for losing faith in the government, just, such as the lying about the Gulf of Tonkin incident during the Vietnam War. And uh, various. Uh, whenever the truth comes out, it doesn't bear much resemblance to what the government said happened and what the press uh, rubber-stamped. And I want to emphasize, remember how the press rubber-stamped the Warren Report. And uh, very few people said, Said, this is this, this is impossible. This can't be. I mean, there were even members of the Warren Commission, three of them, who didn't want to sign off on it and said that they, they didn't think it was right. Uh, Hale Boggs being one of them. And uh, and yet, up to this point, we, we the, the subject has been a taboo. And yet, at the same time, there's an enormous disaffection from the government, really. And I wonder, you know, in this current election coming up, how many of the young people will really vote? Will they really come out and believe that one of the candidates is substantially different from the other? They're very skeptical. Uh, Don't count on them. Okay. That's interesting. That's an interesting take. I want to say something also about reading this book. Uh, I'm sure it was an exhaustive effort for you, but it's exhausting to read. And I have to say that I didn't expect this, but your, your emotions run the whole gamut. I mean, there's sadness. 
there's anger, frustration, and actually there's some humor. And I'll tell you, some of the lines that, that uh, Garrison came out with were pretty good. Garrison was enormously humorous, oh. sardonic, ironic, hilarious, and he loved to be. And of course, he, you know, in 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 Louisiana, the use of language and metaphor. He used to be used about the squid and the fish and the octopus. That's in the new book. And I think that, uh, that that's an art. Language is an art form down there. When John Bolt, yeah. his assistant, was talking about Vernon Bundy, one of the Kennedy assassination witnesses, there was Saw Shaw with Oswald, and I said, "Well, did, did, did you believe him?" And John said to me. I know when someone is shucking me, meaning yep. like an oyster. Yep. But, I mean, that's typical Louisiana talk. Or they use crawfish as a verb. <laughs> Louis Ivan did, and I enjoy that verb. You know, crawfish move backwards. So when you're trying to get a, evade an issue, you crawfish at it. Oh, that's and great. And that's a verb. That's, and, I, I, it's and, of course, some of Garrison's humor, I can't admit. Which, which ones were you looking at? <laughs> I'm going to have to try to get through this. But the one when he's being prosecuted, they asked him when he's when he was on trial, how does it feel? And he said somewhere between an orgasm and cremation. Well, that's fair. That's right. Because what do you have? What, what do you expect me to say? I'm on trial here in federal court for something I didn't do, which is taking bribes from pinball people, and that's another whole oh, story. I know. And how do you feel about it? Well, I'm that, that's but very imaginative. Well, he was a literary man. I have to say about Garrison. If you're interested in Garrison's life, that what his ambition was at the very beginning was not to be a lawyer or a district attorney or judge, which is what he became, but to be a writer, to be an author. And the thing that he was proudest of in his life was that he published three books. And he had this bet with two of his friends, J.T. Still and uh, Jack Grayson, great people, and uh, who was going to publish the first major book with a trade publisher. And they had, and then the one who did would take the others to dinner at Antoine's. And of course, at the, they would still, that was throughout their lives, they were arguing about who actually has won this bet because they were all writers. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm going to steal that line, and I can't wait to use it. So <laughs> when the time comes, but here's what I was wondering about too: with characters who are strong, who don't mind taking on the machinery, and even if we could look at Bob Knight just in this group, also with Jim Garrison, it seems to me that with their whole makeup, there are also there's a part of them that opens them up to to. Uh, criticism. Uh, like in Bob's case, for instance, everybody associates that temper of his. Let me say something about Coach Knight. Sure. Coach Knight does not suffer fools gladly. Uh, apparently, yeah. He is not diplomatic. If somebody is uh, way out, you're just stupid or says something ignorant, and yep. uh, you know, he doesn't hold back. I'm not sure that's a fault. Uh, it's his personality. I think one of the things that I must tell your audience, if they're interested in, in Coach Knight, who's just about the most generous person I've ever met, mm. the kind the most uh, lucid, and also many people in a position like his, this is just Bob Knight now, he really, and if you're encountering him, say, as a writer, for example, as I was, he really takes a good look at you. He doesn't, he doesn't it's not about him, it's also about you. He looks at you and sees who you are, and then he makes an assessment, and he was a great judge of character, which is what a teacher does. He really was, because that's what a coach does, you have to look at your players, look at your recruits, who you got, and what they're capable of, and what they're not capable of and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And that was the way, that's the way he approaches life and people with enormous intelligence, enormous acuity. And I, 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 I when, when, when it's all, when, when it all is balanced out, I think he's one of the great figures. And it's unfortunate if history
history has to, and I'm speaking maybe both of Bob Knight and uh, Jim Garrison at this point, uh, uh, that it's going to take time and, you know, years before uh, the, the, an accurate assessment of these people really settles. Um, and I think, you know, of course, Jim Garrison is dead, but even now still being attacked, still being criticized, ignored, and, uh, and, and, and so forth. And I wish that Coach Knight were coaching again, because I, it's, it's, it's really sad that a coach like that, with that level of uh, ability, he practically invented the game, I mean, with others, of course, whom he freely acknowledges, uh, uh, should not be coaching when he still has so much energy left. And I hope that if anybody, I'm, I don't know of any... Athletic directors are listening to this. Hire Bob Knight. <laughs> well, I tell you, a, a final comment about about Bob, if you'll allow me, and then I want to go to to, uh, to Garrison. And that is, what's interesting is now that he's not coaching, he's a analyst on one of his uh, sports channels. And then you get now you get a little different look at him, and he is extremely endearing. I have to say, uh, he's got a good sense of humor. He's he's got a deprecating sense of humor at times. It is softening. I think the image that people will take from you know. Uh, away from uh, his experiences, whether or not he gets back into uh, uh, coaching or uh, you know, whatever it should, should be. But right now, I do think it gives you an excellent glimpse. Uh, well, I think he would, frankly. I think that it was a great idea for him to go on ESPN during right. the, uh, the, Big Ten, the, rather the uh, NCAA tournament sure. so people could see what he's really like. That's what he's like. Uh, that's what it seems, and that's why I think this might also w work uh, you know, in the final uh, um, assessment of, of uh, Coach Knight. Now, going on to uh, Garrison. Now, here's a situation where I'm wondering, uh, did he shoot himself in the foot at all because, say, of his flamboyance or philandering or whatever? I mean, could he have done some things that might have aided his, his project, or did it not really factor in at all? Well, you can always find something about someone if you want to attack them. Jim Garrison was not a domestic man. If we need to, just, I don't see what that has to do, really, with his work. With his, I mean, look at President Kennedy. My God, he had uh, the, the sexual exploits of President Kennedy, but uh, are you know defy description. Only in character but, assassination, though, where somebody can say, "Well, see, he's done this," and it's like, "Well, what's the point?" But that's how that goes, and I think. Yeah. I don't think that. I think that's just very low-level thinking. It is. I don't sure. know what we all do sexually. What we we should put it all on the table. <laughs> I mean, but Jim Garrison was not a domestic man, and I think when you look, so that therefore, when you know, we had the women, if you want, and uh, and people would, would said, look, he did this, therefore what? I mean, there were no, as Garrison said, when he was on trial, you know, in that pinball case, the last perfect person walked the earth two thousand years ago. He said that in his uh, closing mm -hmm. statement. And that's it. He was uh, innocent, cast the first stone. Where does that come from? The Bible. Right. I mean, really. Uh, so I'm not bothered by this. If he's in bed with Carlos Marcello, that should give us pause. But he wasn't. He didn't defend Marcello. He uh, he prosecuted um, all of the clubs when he was doing the Bourbon Street raids. This gets us back to Garrison's life and times. The, the places that were mafia-owned were closed as well. He didn't protect those. And I, you know, and I, you know, his life is a very interesting one. His life is a, is a, he didn't have a father. He didn't know his father until he never, well, just for the first, very few first, first years of his life. And he was susceptible to older men, and he had a friend that was less than honest that he made chief investigator of the, of the office, and that had certain consequences, but nothing to do with the Kennedy investigation. 
And this person actually, his name was Pershing Chavez, and he didn't want any part of the Kennedy thing. He said, I don't want to, I, I, I'm not about to uh, commit to a kamikaze. I'm not about to be a kamikaze. And, uh, you know, in other words, have the federal government destroy me because I'm calling them liars. Not that he didn't know that they were liars. And at the end of the book of uh, Life and Times, I discussed the reactions of the closest people to Garrison in his life of the, to his decision to involve himself in the Kennedy investigation. And, and they included Pershing Gervais, his ex-friend, his wife, his mistress, his friends, and uh, how everybody felt about it. Nobody supported the idea. Those people who were closest to him, nobody thought this was a good idea. But he felt that it was the right thing to do, and, and, and he followed it. I can't think of anyone else in history, if you look at it, any other law enforcement officer who did what Garrison did and then has put his office uh, at, 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 in, in jeopardy, if you like, or, or and went out there and tried to find out who killed President Kennedy. It's extraordinary. You don't see anybody in Dallas doing it. I, I've wanted to devote most of this interview to, to paint a portrait of, of Jim Garrison because you deal with a lot more in this book, a lot more than we ever can cover here. Uh, and, I, and let's let the people read the book by all means. And you have a, a paperback edition that's been out for a little bit over a year. Is that true? Well, the paperback edition of Farewell to Justice is really just the paperback. It doesn't add. And that's why... I put Kennedy assassination information also in Jim Garrison, his life and times, the discussion of Jack Martin, because some people, when they read A Farewell to Justice, were shocked that I wrote that Jack Martin was an intelligence operative, because he was the handler of Thomas Edward Beckham, and, well, how, how prove it, and, you know, so that's, I devoted uh, part of the appendix in the Jim Garrison, his life and times to the documents, citing the documents that, from the CIA, that suggest that Jack Martin was known to them and how. They even used the word generic to describe, I mean, a generic Jack Martin. And as L.J. Delsa yeah. said to me, he was just, this really, he was so obvious. And Delsa was a longtime homicide officer in the New Orleans police who was then selected to be one of the uh, New Orleans investigators for the House Select Committee. And yeah, I relied on his understanding of the situation in addition to the documents. It was so clear. Uh, one, of, one of the things also, uh, I've wondered about, and uh, and you speak to how he, I guess he viewed um, that House Select Committee on Assassinations in '76. He had obviously seen the Church Committee for whatever that lent itself to. What took place uh, with the assassination of Kennedy? That was '73. Uh, did he ever really, really close his investigation of this of, of the Kennedy assassination? I mean, did Garrison close it? I mean, whether it's... Garrison closed... Um, um, and what happened to Garrison was that, that pinball, that federal trial, and uh, being accused of taking bribes from pinball was enormously innovating, and it took several years before it finally came to court. It finally came to trial in 1973, and at that, that October, or November rather, Garrison was up for re-election again, and he was so exhausted, he really didn't campaign, and uh, he just... Uh, and and when he lost, he was defeated by Harry Connick, the father of the music, musical Harry Connick. And when he lost that, he lost the investigative tool that he needed, really, to, with investigators to go out into the field and work on the Kennedy case. He lost by 2,200 votes. And Harry Connick delighted, made cufflinks with the word, with 2,000 written on them or something, and gave them out to people. But at that point, Garrison didn't have the facilities to really continue his investigation. He had to do it on his own, and it was much more difficult. Well, when I say closed, I'm putting it in parentheses, because I think, as you said, I mean, you, 
it, it was with him always, and I don't know if he felt any kind of gratification. Uh, that's probably a poor word for it, edification or satisfaction when uh, Stone approached him to, uh, uh, for the movie. Well, I think he was very pleased when his book came out of, uh, on the trail of the assassins, and it uh, was published by a small publisher, Sheridan Square Press. And then Stone uh, uh, made, you know, was working on the movie. Alas, Stone sent Garrison a cassette of the film, but he was too sick. He was really on his deathbed, and in the room, this best friend was Judge James Galata, and Judge Galata told me that Garrison couldn't quite focus on it. He didn't actually see it. He had it, but he didn't. He really was too sick to really be able to watch it, so he didn't really see it. I don't think it mattered. Garrison always said the truth will come out. Mm-hmm. He had no doubt about that, and um, I think he was glad that he was the subject of the film. Although you know he had various disputes with Stone along the way, but he was glad that it that it came yeah, out. And right. there it is. Yeah, that's what I was saying. He's got to know that that's going to linger also, uh, and raise questions with future generations. I'm sure. Well, Stone is still being attacked. I mean, Stone right. has come back and he's making. I, I, we're very look, look, we're looking forward to his new film W. But I don't know. I mean, it, it took a lot out of Stone, the kind of attacks. And Gar- Stone had a lot of good sense of humor, too. And he called Garrison's publisher, and he said, why didn't you tell me so many people hated Jim Garrison? He was joking, you know, must have known. But he uh, he suffered, as we know, great abuse for having made that film. Uh, in the time that we have left, um, and I'm doing it for mo- mostly just to get this out, I, I want people, again, to read this. But uh, some fascinating things, that's that's the right word for it. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I was amazed when, because it's the first knowledge uh, that I've ever had to this effect, that RFK was actually aware, very well aware, uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald was floating around out there. Yes, and I just, wow. you know, whatever the truth is, you follow it. If I don't know all the details of that, but I do know that, and I believed Angelo Morgano. Mm-hmm. Now, people can say they don't believe him, but I did. I was there. I was in his house. I, uh, he was very reluctant to tell me anything at all. It was like pulling teeth, and um, I believe he was telling the truth. Uh, also, Morgano said this, and I think it echoed the sentiments of RFK, and that was Garrison got it nearly the whole nine yards. He got it 90% right. That's right, because it was, they knew, they knew. It's not as if this, you know, the whole Kennedy assassination and what happened, it's really an open secret. Yes, it is. And this is the thing, you know, when people always talk about conspiracies and they want to play them down, uh, it's that, well, you know, how could this be kept a secret if so many people knew? There were, there were hundreds of people who knew this was going on and spoke about it very irreverently, like now that guy is going, that SOP is going to get it in Dallas and such. It's amazing. So, yeah, you can keep a secret, an open secret, just like you said. And and this is a great example of it. The, the other thing I want to ask you about, uh, and I, you may not know, I'm just going to throw it out there. I know in the book you wrote that Garrison protected Box as being an inspiration, if you might, or an or, uh, I wouldn't say an instigator into checking this out, uh, that he protected Box and kind of said it was Russell Long that did it for public consumption. Yes. Do you think Bob's uh, uh, plane crash was a coincidence, or do you believe that that cover maybe not didn't work and people were upset with Box and what he might have done later on? You know that Bob's just shortly before his plane disappeared, got on the floor of the house and attacked the FBI, attacked Jager. Yep. So uh, that's, we don't have the proof, but... There's something wrong there. Yes, okay. Uh, also, I want to mention, this was, to me was one of the, I'll, I'll, I'll say, spookiest episodes. And that was the whole story of Rose, and I hope I get this name right, uh, Sheremy? Rose Sheremy. 
That, that is unbelievable. Well, there's so much more there. There's yes. that silver slipper, where uh, which was owned by Jack Ruby, and uh, and and then of course Rose Rose in the very same place where Oswald went to get a job. Rose was taken to the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson, where she seems to be predicting that uh, the the assassination of President Kennedy, where she admits that she says that Oswald and Ruby knew each other, and you don't have to rely on the crazy drunken prostitute Rose Jeremy. There's, I have so much evidence in my books that uh, Oswald and Ruby knew each other. There's just no question about that. I mean, and, and the squalor with her life, too. I mean, it, it was it, it was heart-wrenching. But it might understand from the information that you got, and, and I want to see if I got this portrayal correctly. She said what she said. She tried to get the message out. Did she actually sit with other people in that hospital and watch that motorcade on TV? And did, did that go yeah, out I live? I know that the motorcade wasn't, didn't go out. I'm, I'm just not... 100% clear okay. about what she was seeing or whether it was the news or whether, you know, I, I don't have that exactly clear. The fact that she predicted what would happen, too many people reported on it. Major doctors in the hospital, nurses, uh, and, and of course, East Feliciana, East Feliciana Parish up there, everybody's talking. Well, and there's nobody uh, stopping them. And that's why when the FBI went into that hospital uh, on the week after the assassination and already knew that Oswald had been there, well, how, if you're going to deny that that happened, how do you explain that? Right. And the only way I had that information was one witness, Merrill Hudson, who worked in the office there at uh, the hospital, and said, well, what, what are these people doing here? How do they know? Well, and I think nobody bought, nobody realized anybody would go up to that uh, deserted, uh, primitive area up there and, uh, and, and, and ask questions. But you see, here's another example. When you talk about the low mentality, would attack somebody for whatever that shouldn't be have anything to do with one's activities uh, with regard to uh, what Garrison was doing with the Kennedy assassination and what Rose was doing. You know, they'll, they'll pass her off as a tart and all this other stuff so she can't possibly be credible. And yet, how can you make that up? I mean, if she called it before it happened, and she wasn't guessing. So, I mean, it's, that to me is unimpeachable, but they'll dust her under the rug of time because, well, look, she was a prostitute, you know. Well, Garrison answered that question before the short trial. He said, You're not, I'm not going to have any bank presidents up here. Right. I'm not going to have the head of the Chamber of Commerce because those kind of people were not in on these things. Yeah. Uh, one last uh, parting uh, shot, if I could, and that is it was the, uh, the HSCA, that select committee, that did come out and say, okay, there was a conspiracy. Now, let me see if I got this right. They come out that they say it's a conspiracy. They also, I think, uh, unearthed the evidence of more than three shots because of the tape that was playing, I guess it was on a Dallas PD motorcycle. Yes, they, well, they, they, of course, since regretted it, I guess, but they did base that reluctant decision to say that it would have been right. a conspiracy based on the acoustic evidence, yes. Yeah, and, and, and yet... They come up with, but we don't know who did it. It, it couldn't be this, it couldn't be that, it couldn't be the FBI, CIA. Well, 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 Blakey finally, when he wrote oh, the book yeah. about it, he said the FBI, he said the mafia, rather. He uh, closed that circle. He's, he, he made his case. I'll, I'll share one thing with you, and, and we'll let you go. And again, thanks for your time, Joan Mellon. We really appreciate it. There was something that happened back in around 1988. <clears throat> I was visiting a friend up in Vermont, and he had one of the first satellites. And I don't know if you remember... You probably do that with these satellite feeds that were going out also across commercial TV or whatever. They didn't go to commercials and they kept the mics live. And you would see you know, there was an interview. They would come up to the person and do a little, you know, touching up. And this was all being seen. I saw an interview with Marina Oswald. <clears throat> I don't know who was interviewing her. I kind of think it might have been Larry King. But what stunned me 
was that during a break, somebody must have asked her, um, who killed Kennedy? And Marina says, well, the mafia. And they said, well, why? She goes, well, they caught JFK playing in their garden. That's all that she said. Now, I'm not giving any credibility necessarily, but I was stunned to have heard that, that that went out over the airwaves unless it was also deliberate disinformation. Uh, how would you ever come down on something like that? And I'm asking you to make a conjecture. As far as Marina Oswald is concerned, I did call her and I talked to her, and she wouldn't say much. You see, Marina, it's a long story. I don't know if we have time, but Marina Oswald is one of those people who gave so many different versions of the story that she lost all credibility. And that's the way you stay alive. If you want to stay alive and you know too much, you have to you have to be a con man, or you have and, and a liar, and you know nobody is worried because nobody right. believes what you say. So when you say right. the truth, nobody believes it. As far as that, one thing she did tell me, I don't believe what about that about the mafia. But one yeah, of the things she did tell me was that Garrison treated her like a gentleman. And I rather liked that. She had no reason to say one way or the other, because she came to the Orleans uh, Parish uh, Grand Jury and testified. I rather liked that. She had nothing but good things to say about Garrison. If there were an epitaph for this episode in American history, would uh, perhaps Bernard de Torres be right when he said uh, they'll never find out what happened? No, I think we do, do know what happened. All right. All right. Um, I think we do. I wish that more people shared that, but maybe that will happen. Hey, Joan, thanks a lot for being with us again. We've been talking about her book, uh, Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination, and the Case That Should Have Changed History. I'm not sure it didn't in some way, shape, or form either. And remember, there is another book out there now, Jim Garrison, Life and Times, The Early Years. Joan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.